Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? This is Deborah Hamilton. This podcast will seek to define and explain this important question from multiple points of view. We will interview owners, breeders, caregivers, defenders, advocates, champions, and educators. The mission of my podcast is to seek and foster collaborative conversations where every point of view feels heard, acknowledged, and appreciated. I look forward to you joining me on this journey toward a better understanding of each other. It is possible to have an impossible conversation. It starts with listening for common ground first. I am so glad you're here listening in with me. Now let's see what my next guest has to say. And it's Deborah Hamilton again with my dear friend, Dr. Tom Nichols, who also happens to be an attorney. Thanks, Tom, for being on Why Do Pets Matter? Thank you for having me. Um, they, have, they matter to me because I have had many pets over the years, and uh, it's both a personal thing and my observation that uh, pets do not expect uh, any kind of uh, reward or reaction from their owners. They uh, do not expect to get any uh, enhancement of their activity just because uh, you own them. So they are very uh, good people. As Bill Murray said, some dogs are better people than people are. Absolutely. I love that quote from Bill Murray. And so pets matter to you because they're really non-expectant. They just love you no matter what. And then when you give them something, they're increasingly excited about you giving them something. Throwing a ball is usually enough for my dogs, probably for the dogs in your life as well. Well, that's quite true. And, and of course, I've been around horses as well and done a lot of riding. And, and uh, they by and large, seek to uh, please you, whatever you ask them to do, as long as it's reasonable. So, you know, it's the beginnings of Why Do Pets Matter? We didn't necessarily have three things that we'd like our audience to take away. But today, Tom and I have chatted before this recording, and the three things that Tom and I would like you to take away is that Tom thinks, as he's just said, that Pets are non-expectant, and that's why they matter to us so much, because they always accept us for who we are and don't expect much from us. Um, Tom also said that as a vet, he loves animals because he takes care of them, and he loves taking care of them, and, and just resumed after his um, legal practice took off. He's also now resuming a little bit of his vet practice, which we'll hear some about. And then, of course, as an attorney, he loves to be able to help people who have an issue with their pets. So the three takeaways are that they're non-expectant, that they really are an important part of your life, and that if you have an issue, there are attorneys who help you. So Tom, let's go back because I'd love to hear a little bit more about your time with horses because of course you and I have attended the um, University of Kentucky's equine conference for many years and both of us are big horse lovers well i've been around horses for many many years um did a lot of riding did some steeplechase riding and uh, the thing that i take away from it no matter what level is that people really care for them they care for them really well and uh, i have never had a so-called bad horse to deal with um 
there are some that are more difficult than others, but it's usually the fault of the person who's trying to deal with them rather than the horse itself. And uh, I have uh, been impressed with the overwhelming um, amount of uh, emotional attachment there is to a particular animal. Uh, and I have also, of course, uh, dealt with racehorses, which uh, there is considerable financial burden as well. Yeah, and the racehorses have such um, an impact on so many areas of horsemanship because we have, at you know, certain times of the year, all the foalings um, happen. And then at other times of the year, they start their race training and then they start their racing. Um, and then there's the entire discussion about um, how they are to retire. So that's a huge question. We'll have to have you back for that one because that's a huge question that I'm sure you're going to educate my listeners um, on our next podcast. But for this one, we're going to just talk about why they matter in that non-needing way. They really don't require you to do anything. Expand for, a for me a little bit what it is that makes them, in your, in your experience, because you've had them um, dogs for, for a long time, um, so non-expected, so um, present with you, um, while you're going through things, it, it seems as if they really can read our minds. Yeah, they, um, uh, a, lot of, a lot of dogs, without actually doing anything, they can sense uh, that something's not wrong or you're upset about something. Uh, so uh, that, I think that's a real thing. They, they have some empathy and uh, also uh, in uh, medical research, they have found that they are capable of detecting, for example, cancerous growth. And they, they know about them sometimes before somebody else can. You know, it's so true because um, I had a dog who uh, was able to detect pancreatic cancer uh, much earlier than it would have been detected because she lived with a pancreatic cancer survivor for seven years. Um, and so she was really highly trained to, to um, understand that smell. And when she smelled it, she would alert. And um, she was working with a number of hospitals here in New York to help them do that. Well, you know, that's absolutely uh, true. And, and I've run across service dogs for people for like diabetics and stuff like that. They can uh, detect, uh, they've got a very good sense of smell, so they can detect uh, ketones and stuff like that way before it becomes apparent to anybody else. You know, it's really interesting. So when you when you had your animals at the beginning, what made you decide to go into veterinary medicine? Because it's clear to me that you loved animals and they had a big impact on your life. But why did you go into veterinary medicine? Well, um, I saw uh, the, and, and even the uh, simplest of things uh, in terms of other veterinarians that would uh, cure animals and, you know, quite a simple procedure, but made a huge difference to the, to the uh, animal's life. And of course, to the owner. Absolutely. You know, uh, that's, that's true. And, uh, and sometimes it, it's amazing. You can just change one little thing and it makes a world of a difference. 
And sometimes it's the simplest thing. Sometimes it's a change of food or it's a, you know, it's an exercise that you can do that makes things turn around for an animal. What's the most incredible case exactly. you had when you were a veterinarian that the oddest thing happened and, and the dog got better? Well, uh, r right on point to what you just said, um, I remember a uh, puppy that was really not doing well. Um, and it, it wasn't thriving, it wasn't putting on any weight, it was very lethargic and depressed, and all they did was change the food. And it started to eat, and three months later it was a different dog. And if they work with their veterinarians, they can often, you know, figure this out together as a team. Well, yeah, um, you know, we, we did all the tests and all that sort of stuff, and we said, well, I don't know, it doesn't seem to be anything that wrong, why don't we try this? And yeah. that was it. You know, it's, it's some of the <laughs> simplest things. I know that I've had a few dogs that when we changed the food, they thrived. Um, uh, I have Irish setters and they're not the best of eaters, some of them. Uh, and when we change the food, they tend to thrive. So it's a simple fix, but yet sometimes it's right under your nose and you miss it because you're looking for um, an elephant in a sea of, um, what is it, zebras or something. It's, you know, <laughs> you're trying to find that elephant and it really is just um, the wrong colored zebra and you just need to change the zebra. Yeah, right. So um, take us on the journey from veterinary medicine um, to the law, because now you, you like me, went to law school and, and practiced law, and we um, practiced in the venue of, um, well, all over venues for, I think, both of us, but we had some focuses, focused on animals. What made you transition from veterinary medicine um, to law? And we'll start us there, and then I'll ask you the next question. Okay, well, it, it wasn't entirely voluntary. I'd been practicing veterinary medicine for over 20 years, and Somebody tried to put their car where mine was, and <laughs> a part of week after, <laughs> a part of week after getting out of hospital, or I should say, after getting out of hospital after about a week, they told me you need to find something different to do. So um, I went to law school and did something different. Wow! So you had to recover from a car accident, um, and in doing so, they told you you couldn't practice veterinary medicine, and we'll get to that later. But so you went to law school and and. When you when you got out, what were your hopes for and your your aspirations for the law when you got out of law school? Well, um, I initially uh, thought that uh, the uh, primary thing that I would do would be uh, malpractice, veterinary malpractice, uh, because I was pretty much familiar with the field. Um, and then it became apparent that the difference between that and medical malpractice were, was quite small. So I finished up doing both, um, and, uh, and that's the primary uh, focus of my practice, I'd say. Let me ask you a question. In veterinary malpractice, um, you, you said that the discussions are, are small. And, and elaborate on that a little bit, because I know it's often hard for people to bring veterinary malpractice cases if they are the pet owner. Um, and so tell us a little bit about your practice, because I think that you do mostly, and I might be wrong, and please correct me, you do mostly pet owner representation and not veterinary defense work, or I might be wrong. Tell me. No, you're correct. The uh... All veterinarians have malpractice insurance, and about 95% plus are through Zurich Insurance Company. Um, so uh, all of my work 
uh, is is plaintive work. In other words, the person that owns the dog or cat or horse. One of the main differences between the veterinary malpractice and medical malpractice is, unfortunately, and I don't agree with this, but we're stuck with it, animals are considered property. And most people's pets, with the exception of expensive resources, aren't actually worth a whole lot of money. Right. So um, often I hear, uh, well, this pet was worth a million dollars to me. Well, it may be worth a million dollars to you, but it's not worth a million dollars to anybody else. So in other words, if you win, uh, the problem is that you can't win very much. And uh, that is a constant battle that, that I'm faced with. Uh, you can't uh, collect for emotional distress in this state anyway. Uh, and therefore, you're pretty much uh, limited to the courts are getting away from fair market value to the actual value to the, of, to the owner, where they will take into account special training and stuff like that. But they will not allow for emotional distress and, and similar claims. Yeah, it just it's it's so interesting because your practice and my practice align in that I I tend to try to mediate them um, up front so that litigation because uh, correct me if I'm wrong it is expensive to litigate a malpractice case against a veterinarian. Well, um, if you can keep it in small claims, um, we're still talking about several thousand dollars. If it goes out of small claims, which they've just changed the jurisdiction to year of over $8,000, it can be very expensive. We can easily be talking about ten, twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 before you go to trial. And that's in legal fees. And what are your chances, since emotional distress isn't part of um, the makeup of any award, uh, the fair market value or value to an owner, does it ever cover legal expenses? Very rarely. So it's a principal thing. Um, it's a principal thing. And I just got off the phone with somebody today. I said, well, let me have a look at the uh, records and uh, maybe we'll send a demand. And she says, well, okay, let's do that. But I'm, I'm not going to keep quiet about this. Well, I don't know about you, but every settlement agreement I've ever seen has a confidentiality clause in it. Well, mediation is confidential start to finish. So yep, you, well, and, I are well, both, yes. you and I are both in the yeah. same, in the same wagon. And and, you know, most of the time, what I've heard now when people hear about how expensive it is to litigate or even to mediate, um, they prefer to uh, go on social media. Yeah, uh, that costs them nothing. Um, and, of course, as with this other case, uh, she'd also made a complaint to the uh, veterinary board. It kind of burns your boats as far as reaching a settlement because you've already done what you're threatening not to do. Exactly. To make a settlement work, you know, you but know, you're more familiar with that. <laughs> it's it's interesting because you're trying to guide your client, um, and my experience has been the insurance companies do not um, participate in mediation until litigation is in the works, and we've had long talks about this because sometimes you can get a client to have a conversation with you confidentially in mediation that allows you to learn what it is. Um, you may or may not have done or said um, that created this issue. And by just acknowledging and appreciating things 
um, you can sort of nip the conflict in the bud by just listening and appreciating as opposed to waiting until you're sued. Absolutely right. I mean, the, the insurance companies, um, I don't know if they know that they're doing it, but they're, they, their initial knee-jerk reaction is denied, defensive, and they really take the client off. So immediately you've got a confrontational situation, which, like you say, if you just had a few words beforehand, maybe would never have. And I'm always saying have a few confidential words beforehand because, you know, none of us are perfect. I raise my hand. I'm raising both my hands right now because I know I'm not perfect and I say stupid things at times. Um, and so to protect the veterinarian and the client, doing it in mediation before litigation allows you to be totally honest and upfront and say things that, you know, may inflame, may not. But if you have a really good mediator, you can really bring everyone back around to just having a conversation about what occurred and everyone learns from the experience because I know from your, your experience likely the the client didn't ask questions they thought they should have or they might have and the veterinarian thought whatever they said was clear as mud or you know clear as day and it was clear as mud to the client right I mean I, I just had one the other day where the client signed a declination to do something and then he's mad at the vet because the thing that he declined to do was fairly important and you know, the vet, the vet says, well, you know, you signed it. I recommended that you did this, and you, and you said, no, I don't want to do that. So it's very, and you know, you, I, I think a little word there. Well, now at this stage, we're up to our ears in litigation. Right. I mean, exactly. if that had been addressed before the thing was ever filed, you might be able to go somewhere. So some of my veterinary clients who call me say, Deborah, I want to do this. Um, and I always say to them, I want to help you. You have to call your insurance company um, to get the okay because I don't know how many of my readers know, my listeners know. Um, but if you have malpractice, if you have any insurance, you have to alert the insurance company if you're going to do something that may end in litigation because they have to say okay or not okay. And it's been my experience that 50% of the time the insurance companies go, no, we're not going to cover you if you mediate first before you're sued. There's nothing to mediate. I, 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 I can understand that, but I don't agree with it at all. I, got a I couple understand of friends. it too. We're two, four, I'm a former litigator. You're still litigating. I understand it too. Um, but veterinarians really then are put, and, and being a veterinarian, you understand this. Veterinarians are put in a bad place because they're told by their malpractice insurance company to do X. They'd like to do Y, but they certainly don't want to lose their malpractice insurance. So they do X because that's what they're told to do. And then they find themselves in this limbo land, right? Where they may have done nothing wrong, but yet their licenses will be re um, reviewed. Yeah, now they're the bad guys. And, uh, you know, I, I was going to say, I got a couple of friends um, that have been in practice for 40 years each in the veter as veterinarians. They happen to be a married couple, so that's 80 years. And they've never been sued for anything uh, because, not that anything bad hasn't happened, but they have handled it in such a way that, you know, you. The the the, uh, the insurance company says never give them their money back and never apologize. Well, they get they do give them their money back and they do apologize, but they don't say, "I'm sorry, I messed up." They say, "I'm terribly sorry this happened to your pet. I know he meant a lot to you, and uh, maybe this would help as a, as a gesture of goodwill." And you know the the other thing that um, that usually some attorneys advise their clients if they're not going to litigation is this, this was not the outcome any of us expected. 
because you really yeah. you really do want to acknowledge that wow we had talked about x y and z and then the red herring came up and oh my god uh and you're absolutely right veterinarians who decide to work with me early and 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 have a conversation it's hard for them because they they usually say to me often but i said that to them deborah i told them that i told them that over and over again and you know in mediation we hold a safe space for people so i go absolutely i'm sure you did i said and recognize people only hear about a third of what you're telling them when they're yeah, what, sick. what they want to hear yeah yeah and when their pet is sick and so you know sometimes redundancy although you think you've been redundant and you're making them feel like they're um not listening is your friend and and you know being able to have a conversation afterwards and just listening to how they absorb absorb the information you gave them will help you in your next case yeah um it's just, but you're you're absolutely right people only hear what they want to hear um and sometimes uh they're wrong or sometimes they're right yeah um but uh a lot of times and the other thing that I find particularly uh, bothersome is sometimes the people say, well, he told me this. And they may even have a witness with them that says he told me that. And when you get the records, it's written down differently. Yeah. So now you get, well, he said this and she said that, but the records say this. And of course, uh, and, you know, the records speak for themselves and, and it's, it's hard. I, I mean, most of the cases that I have, um, there's no real written record except for what the veterinarian puts in the record. And so, exactly. although, you, yeah. although you might have heard something, and, and that's so frustrating. Don't you find it's frustrating for you as an attorney, and it's frustrating for your clients, and it's frustrating for you to explain to your clients? Yeah, it's, it's very frustrating. And a lot of times, I'm convinced that they're absolutely telling the truth. But I have to try and explain to them, um, you know, you've got to convince a jury about that. Um, well, my husband was with me. He witnessed it. Well, he's your husband. How long have you been married? Ten years. Well, you know, do you think you might uh, try and come up with the same story as you came up with? Um, it's much better if you can get him out of that situation to start with. Absolutely. Because in, first of all, we, we love our pets. And I think now, and I'm sure, you know, you're a veterinarian of a certain age. I'm a lawyer of a certain age. You're a younger lawyer because you did it after your car accident. But um there are things that we did years ago um, that now uh, we can do so much more for the dogs and explaining that sometimes is incredibly difficult because there's so much you can do for dogs or cats or birds or even horses um, now that you couldn't do before and explaining that in a way that your client understands and then if things go wrong I mean we as attorneys always go well disclaimer 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 but you can't remember all of that as a veterinarian. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I can't tell you the, the number of times that I've been told, uh, well, if a horse breaks a leg, you've got to shoot it. Well, you know, maybe 50 years ago, maybe 100 years ago. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And, you know, depending on the severity of the break and where it is and, and how calm the horse is, um, because you and I probably both remember Ruffy and they tried to fix her leg and it might have worked. Um, like it did for Barbaro for a certain period of time because he was a reasonable horse and woke up quietly. Um, but Ruffian, because of her temperament as a racehorse, 
that that cast wasn't staying on her leg and and so unfortunately she had to be um euthanized but you know they do yeah, I mean, you know but but you know even within 10 years of that which is still 40 years ago yep they were with they were they're waking horses up in the pool and in, in a swimming pool in a raft so that that wouldn't happen and just think of those incredibly brilliant vet veterinarians or vet techs or everybody in the room saying well if we woke them up in water would that work and you know it does and god bless whoever thought of that right tom <laughs> yeah right <laughs> I think I would like to wake up in a pool maybe when I wake up from a broken something as well, because at least you're, you know, it's, it's, it keeps you a little bit calmer and, and maybe, you know, cushions the, um, the activity. So that's really huge. I am, mm -hmm. I love this. I'd have to, I'd have to be in a raft because I can't swim. <laughs> <laughs> Well, see, and I'm a competitive swimmer, so that's why it's sort of like home for me. Like, uh, I would never even consider steeplechasing with my horse because I um, have the, you know, I am so adept at falling off. Um, I, I just fall off for no reason, really. He could just kick out in the back, and I go right over his shoulder on the ground and embarrass the living daylights out of him um, as he's looking at well, me. Well, it's, it's, nice it's nice to have an excuse. <laughs> Well, there was a fence in my way. <laughs> yeah. No, no, usually it's a breeze coming up from behind him and he, he gets all, you know, <laughs> whatever. And, and, and I just, that's it. And I'm like, oh, nice piece of ground I just landed on. Um, it, it, you know, this conversation, you and I can have this conversation forever because we know pet owners really adore their pets. And so for you as a veterinarian, um, and now as a lawyer, understand both sides of this discussion in such a unique way. And now, you know, you, you left the practice of veterinary medicine, I, I presume, because they told you to due to your injuries after the car accident, but now you're sort of getting back into it because of your love of animals. Yeah, well, um, let's see, I'm, I'm doing Saturdays. <laughs> That's good, Saturdays <laughs> are good. And, uh, uh... I'm keeping the, the law practice going, but I am doing Saturdays for veterinary. So that shows the ultimate love and devotion you have for animals. You work five days a week helping people um, with animal issues of all kinds um, in the law profession. And then on Saturdays, you help them with their pets in the medical profession. So <laughs> you're just, right. you know, both sides of the spectrum. So yeah, um, pets might not be expecting anything from you. And that's the great thing of why do pets matter? But why does Dr. Tom Nichols matter to pets? Well, because he's just, you know, a super guy. He does everything that um, needs to be done for the animals and the people who own them. I just, I, I want to thank you. You've been You've been fabulous on both sides of the coin. Well, um, thank you for your kind words. Not quite true, though. But <laughs> thank you for saying that. Yeah, it, it, you know, we've had these conversations, and it's interesting to watch the evolution of veterinary medicine to do what it can do now from the time when, you know, we were younger and had pets, and as you said, they were put to sleep. They, there was nothing you could do now. Um, the, the dog in the Super Bowl, um, had a commercial about him so that money could be raised for the veterinary school um, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, because of the breakthroughs they've had in, um, in veterinary medicine and cancer research. And of course, as you and I both know, all of this research then goes on to help humans. Well, you know, it's interesting enough, um, uh, uh, Christian Barnard uh, was the first 
uh, doctor in 1968, I believe, to uh, do a human heart transplant. Heart transplant. Yep. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was at the University of Penn, which I think was in 1970 or something, 70, certainly about 10 years before, uh, one of the professors there was doing heart transplants in dogs all the time. Yeah. And and had come to the conclusion that the main problem was rejection. Yep. It it wasn't a technical uh, transplant issue at all. And so uh, yeah, I mean the the technique was uh, was used, you know, for uh, for, for human yeah for humans yeah. The technique was used for humans, and then they probably discovered um, drugs that further um, limited the rejection of the new heart. Exactly. That that was the big thing was the the rejection, not the uh, mechanics of doing it. Yeah, because the mechanics, I know that um, um, Bernard Rowland always says, is a veterinarian a mechanic or a doctor? Um, and, <laughs> you know, the mechanics are all the same. Um, and if you can learn and, and then learn the science of uh, recovery, which we both know, I, I love when people say my, my dog's having their cruciate fixed. And I go, yeah, that's the easy part. Um, it's keeping them quiet yeah. for the amount of time you need to do that. You know, um, this goes back to um, a talk that I do give on a fairly regular basis. Um, if if animals are only considered property, why do you bring them to a hospital and not the mechanic shop? Yep. <laughs> and and if they're only considered to be property, why would you spend ten thousand dollars on a on an animal you can replace, especially if it's a mixed breed from a shelter, for five hundred dollars? Well, there's a lot more value yeah. there. Yep. And so I think that so, animal law groups are trying to point out. Um, however, there's a great deal of pushback because we wouldn't possibly be able to afford veterinary medicine if malpractice got to be um, emotional distress um, or um, personal, personal injury to the animal. Well, that's a sort of a pet peeve of mine. I, I think the uh, attitude that the AVMA takes is ridiculous because that's what they say. People wouldn't be able to afford it because the malpractice premiums would be up and therefore the veterinarians would have to put their prices up. But when I was in practice, I was covered for a million dollars worth of insurance. Um, my premium was about a thousand a year. Um, I think it's now gone up to 3,000 for a million. Um, you could put a, a cap on emotional distress like $15,000 or something like that, and it wouldn't make a smallest dent in the amount of veterinary care that was available or how much should be charged for it or anything else, because there's not too many vet practices that I know about that um, a difference of a couple of thousand dollars in a year's worth of income is going to make them all jack their prices up through the roof. You know, it's, it's that fear of the unknown that um, drives you nuts. It goes back to the conversation that the veterinarian isn't allowed to have up front because it's the fear of the unknown of what the client's going to say or what the veterinarian is going to say. And so let's not have them say anything and then it escalates. Uh, the fear of the unknown um, is why people really do truly believe, especially as you said, the AVMA um, and PLIT for the AVMA, um, that this can't happen. And it's interesting because 
the ABA, American Bar Association Animal Law Committee, did a study, Chris Green did the study, he's now the head of the animal law um, group up at Harvard University, and I think he did the numbers, he crunched the numbers, and it would cost each veterinarian about 11 cents more if you were to give some emotional distress um, to, as, a, as a reward um, for something that happened to your beloved pet. Because you know my pet peeve, of course, is if you're gonna ask somebody to spend $10,000 on chemotherapy and then if something goes wrong, say the dog's only worth $350 you know, at a shelter, shame on you, because you have to make sure yeah. you, you know, tell your client you're, as a veterinarian, listen, this is gonna cost you $10,000 and I know that you know, you love your pet, um, but in the scheme of things, if it doesn't work or something goes wrong, you know, this is this is the replacement value. My my father, who was you know quite terrible, used to say, "Well, you know, a bullet's only fifteen cents," and I go, "Yeah, Dad, thanks so much." But you know, you really should have to, you know, make sure the client understands that if something goes wrong, and you know, even if they did want to sue them because there was something that goes wrong you know, there isn't recovery for that amount of money that you're, you're spending on your pet. Right. Um, yeah, well, I, I'm interested. Uh, I didn't know that uh, Green had actually uh, costed it out, but I'm not surprised. That seems about right to me. Yep. That's, it seems about right to me. And I'll be happy to list that on this podcast. If anybody wants to read the um, agreement, I've got to dig it out of my archives, but I will. Um, and so we're coming to the end of this discussion, but Tom, I would love to have you back because I know you and I could have an incredible discussion about um, the thoroughbred racing industry, the good, the bad, um, and the uh, ways to make sure these wonderful athletes are well cared for from, as I always say, from um, the broodmare shed um, to retirement. All right. Well, let's do that. The perfect. So this has been Dr. Tom Nichols, a veterinarian and lawyer on Why Do Pets Matter? Thank you all so much for joining us. And remember, listen to all the episodes. They're just as exciting. Thank you so much for coming. You've been listening to the podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? This is Deborah Hamilton. Do you have a great idea or guest or topic that you'd like me to cover, write me at hamiltonlawandmediation.com or email me at whydopetsmatterpodcast at gmail.com. Until next week, our pets do matter. Thank you for being here with me.